Hello, this is Randy Starkey, pastor of Mariposa Baptist Church. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to another message from the Word of God. We hope that it will be a challenge and encouragement to you. If you are not a part of a local church, we would love to have you come and gather with us. We meet together every Sunday morning at 9.30 for Bible study and 10.30 for our worship service. We also meet again on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock for prayer and Bible study together. Again, we would love to have you come and join together with our body of believers to grow in your faith. We are located at 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina, zip code 28164. Again, that's 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina. You can also go to our website to find out more information at www.mariposabc.org. And now, a message from God's Word. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 3, as we continue our series through the book of Acts. We're reading together the first 16 verses of chapter 3. Luke writes, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And at this point in your minds, you can sing that song if you know it, right? And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Our Father, this morning as we contemplate this event that you have inspired Luke to record for us, that you would give us understanding about what it's supposed to do 
and mean in our lives. So, Father, illuminate our hearts by the power of the Spirit to your word that it might do its good work in us and that our response to that word would be in accordance to your will. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, but most importantly, with all that, we pray you would grant us hearts that would joyfully and gladly receive and obey. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. Faith is a big idea. It's a broad idea today. People use the word in so many ways. Even people who are not what we might consider Christian will use this word in one sense or another. In fact, in the last few weeks, there's a show that I'm watching with my boys. I've just taken note in light of preparation for this message, the number of times that people on that show say, I have faith in you. It's an interesting word in itself. And I think about the many different words that would be or mean the same thing. Faith, we could replace with the word belief or believe. I, I believe or trust, to trust in some way or another. But what's interesting is the way that we use these terms so often is detached from an object. We use the word faith, I have faith, and we leave it at that. We leave it open-ended, and many people use it that way, and it seems to be enough. It's a sentiment that sounds good, that can, for some reason, be encouraging when we hear people talking that way, but nevertheless, it is empty of an object. Now, there's one person in this room, at least, maybe more than one, that should take note of the title of my sermon. The reason being is that the title of my sermon was changed yesterday. The title of my sermon are the three pillars of Wingate University. Now, I did so because it fit right in with the purpose and the intent of the passage that is before us today. And as I sat at the Wingate commencement ceremony yesterday, I we heard the typical things, as you would imagine, you've all probably attended a graduation ceremony of some sense, and there are awards given, speeches given, and of course, uh, there's that five-second display of multitudes of number of people. They get their five seconds in the limelight, the snap of a photo, and it's done. In the midst of that commencement, the president gave an address. I'd say it was a nice address. But while I want to be positive in one sense, I have to say it fell woefully short of the opportunity before him and the purpose of the pillars of Wingate University. To give you an example, when he addressed the word faith, he spoke of the people that had faith in the students and the necessity of that and that how that brought them to where they were today. Now, those, that's a paraphrase. It's not a quote. But that was the sentiment that was raised with this pillar of faith. And as I listened to that, I actually turned and looked at my sister and said, that was woefully insufficient. Because I don't have to look up the history of Wingate University because based on what I already know, that Wingate University was begun as a prep school, K-12, through by two Baptist associations that later then turned into a two-year college, and at that point was joined by the North Carolina State Baptist Convention in support. 
With while their purpose most certainly is education, as we would all champion that, it was education rooted in something much deeper. Not faith that we might have in our kids. That's not wrong for us to say, I have faith in you. We understand that when we use a sentiment like that, we mean that based on your character or what I know about you, your skills, your abilities, I have confidence that you can do this or that. So I'm not saying that saying that is wrong, but it most certainly is not the ultimate goal. Wingate University, like many other Christian schools that have wandered from their original purpose, were rooted in a very particular faith, faith that has an object way above any student that's ever attended there, knowledge that while serves a purpose in this life, goes far beyond mere technical abilities to accomplish any one thing, but a knowledge that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And service that far exceeds our ability to join service clubs and and do good things for a community, all of which are fine things, but a service that serves or comes as the fruit of faith in a person and work of our God in the person of Jesus Christ that leads to our knowledge of real truth that then bears itself out in service not to merely human beings, but to the God of all creation. I raise this because it makes a good introduction to the story that we're about to consider. Faith is important. Faith stands at the center of our Christian beliefs. But what we mean when we talk about faith matters. It can't be merely a good sentiment. It must be determined by the God who grants faith. So we have to add adjectives to be clear about what we mean. So we we need to add to that biblical faith. What is biblical faith? Because that's what we're after. While I pray you have faith in your kids and your friends and your loved ones, and that faith is fleeting and it's conditional. But the faith that is rooted in the gospel is not. And the issue comes with the redefining of our terms. I don't want to be nitpicky about things, but it does matter. What we say and what we mean matters. So when we take rich, deep words and we use them in a variety of ways, in such a way that the world can then co-opt them for their own purposes, we begin, even within the church, to lose the depth of the meaning of the very foundational truths of which we claim we believe. Well, the same thing happens not just with words, but with the Scripture That when we lose sight of the meanings and the richness and the depth of ideas and words that God has granted to us in His revelation for us to be able to begin to understand the vastness of the gospel, we apply that when we read Scripture and we bring to the text things that were never intended to be there, and we put our focus on the things that we're not intended to be focusing on. When we take faith and we say merely, I have faith in you, it does reduce 
the focus of where our faith is supposed to be. When we come to a passage like this, we begin as we're walking through Acts. This is the first of many of which we're going to read that are similar to this story. This is not just a story. It is a story that's recorded for us that that is a true event according to the Bible. God inspired it, but He didn't inspire it merely for us to, to look through a window and be able to see something that happened. Yes, the event was real. And God so used this event and inspired Luke to record this event for our benefit. Not merely so we can peer through the window and go, looky there, isn't that amazing? But so that we can learn and grow and understand, in part, faith, knowledge, and service. Now, many would preach this passage, or some, maybe not many, and and end it at verse 10. And it'd be a great story if we did that. But I would argue that if we did that, that we would fall woefully short of the purpose of this text. Now, I have cut it off in the middle of Peter's sermon to save for next time the, the focus of verse 19 and the rest of the content of the sermon. But nevertheless, we will see the point, I hope, of the recording of this narrative. And there's two ways or two things that we need to give attention to. Number one is a wonder. There's a miracle that takes place. There's no doubt about that. That's clear in Scripture. And then there's a word. There's a word spoken spoken as a result of the wonder that is observed. So let's give attention to each of these briefly. And then I want to give you a few conclusions to draw, at least that I've drawn from that. First, the wonder in verses 1 through 10. You know the story, we read it, we find Luke's continuation of what he's already established for us, as he told us in the previous chapter at the end of it, that those who had been saved, those who had been baptized, they continued and devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then from that general statement, we now get a glimpse into those very things. So we find Peter and John were going up to the temple when at the hour of prayer, in continuation and devotion to this very reality. Now, Peter and John were not alone, I assume. The the text focuses on Peter and John for the sake of what Luke is trying to convey, but I imagine that of those many who had been saved and baptized, who together with them were devoted to these things, were present as well. But they show up at the common place where people would go for the purpose of prayer. And just like any other day, that they would have gone. I don't assume this is, this is the first time, maybe, it doesn't tell us, but probably not. But there's a man who's there, who's, who's been there day after day after day. The Bible tells us that he was laid daily at the gate. And if you glance on into chapter 4, you will find that this man is over 40 years old. Therefore, this has been a long-term occurrence. This is nothing new. This was the regular pattern of this man's life. Somehow he would be taken there, he would be placed at the gate in order that he could ask for, for, for gifts, money, so that he could feed himself, himself and maybe some of his family. The Bible tells us that Peter and John show up, and for some reason on this day, while this was not necessarily a new occurrence of them passing by this man, on this particular day, something's different. Now, The man shows up, 
without any extravagant expectation. He was expecting to get money. That's it. Forty plus years, unable to walk, to do for himself. Nothing had changed. There was nothing in this day that would have caused him to think today is going to be different. But Peter and John passed by, and of course, as he does with all, he asks them for alms, some money. Help me put bread on my table. And we see Peter's response, silver and gold, we don't have. But what we do give, have we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And as a result, a miracle takes place. Wow. It's a wonder. It's amazing. It is. This is unusual. And you imagine for the guy who was expecting nothing different. He was ignorant. He didn't come with any expectation, but merely to do what he'd always done. But yet, the result is now that his life was radically changed. Now, I want to insert something I will come back to because it's of interest to me. The man needed money for a reason, and that reason would be to feed himself and possibly others. A miracle took place. He could now walk. But there were many able-bodied people in Jerusalem of that day who were in just as much destitution and need of food as the man who couldn't walk. Just keep that in mind, and we'll come back to that. They, God, did a miracle, and this man could now walk, and he was overjoyed. He went running, leaping, and praising God, walking, leaping, and praising God. And again, as I referenced before, you know the song, right? I'm assuming that, and he went walking and leaping and praising God. You know the kid's song, right? Am I the only one here? I got a few head nods. Every time I read that, that song echoes in my mind. And then it says, as a result, that the people, and, and take note of these few things, and again, I'll circle back to this. It says that while he was clinging to Peter and John, and he was in, now in the temple, it says that the people saw him and recognized him as one who sat at the gate. The point being, he was a fixture there. They knew who he was. They knew this guy had been lame for many, many years. And it's because of that knowledge that they were filled with wonder and amazement because the impossible had just taken place. End of the story. Now, the question at this point is, so what are we to make of that? Well, what some people would conclude from a story like that is, is something like this. We would probably try to imagine a lot more that's, than that what's in the text and then come to some conclusion. I say this because I know of some who have. A conclusion like this. Well, if you just have faith, God will heal you. Now, that's a nice sentiment, isn't it? And it sounds good. Problem is, it's just not there. Because number one, there's no occurrence in this text of the lame man's faith. I had a dear friend once who, who was the one who got me started in Haiti. And he developed cancer, stomach cancer. He was a wonderful, godly man. I loved him. He input into my life in a, in a magnificent way. 
But I remember when he got sick that he would often say something akin to, if I just have enough faith, God will heal me. And I thought, wow. I mean, what do you say to that when, when you're, someone you love is sick and, and if nothing changes, it will kill them? And they make a statement like, and others make the statement, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. And I remember grieving that reality because apparently he didn't have enough faith. Now, I don't believe that's true. But this is where many people land with the issue of faith. Because the term for us is often defined by the world and our sentiments and sensationalism than it is by the Word of God. There's nothing that we can really draw from this story at this point other than that God did a wondrous miracle. But He did it for a purpose, which then moves us to the rest of the story. There's not only a wonder, but there's a word. As he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, in wonder and amazement, the Bible says, they ran together them in the portico called Solomon's. And like any good preacher, when there's a crowd, preach. And that's what Peter did. Now, I want to circle back for just a moment because it wasn't my intent to belittle or demean the president of Wingate University. I'm sure he's a, a wonderful man with great desire and heart for what he's doing. I just can't imagine serving at a Christian university with an opportunity of hundreds, if not over thousands of people sitting there in front of me and focusing on faith, knowledge, and service, and not providing the greatest news that could ever be given, in the hopes that even if one might hear and believe. Because I can assure you, there were probably many in that crowd who do not know Christ. Oh, they might have faith of some sort. And it's a reminder to us all that it doesn't just require that you have a podium and an audience for which to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. All you need is one. Peter stands in the crowd and he addresses them. And just to summarize it, there are really two things that Peter does in preaching the gospel much of it's very much like chapter 2, but it does bring some additional focus. So, two things that Peter does in this message, at least up through verse 16. We'll see more next time. But number one, he exalted Jesus and he exposed the object of faith, the object of true biblical faith. So, he exalted Jesus. How did he exalt Jesus? Well, notice that what he does. Now, I'll add in this, all this, is, this isn't the point of this message, but maybe next week we'll tie into this. But not only does he, he exalt Jesus, but in so doing, he indicts the audience. But our focus this morning is on the exaltation of Jesus. It says, as Peter addressed them, he says, why do you wonder at this? And notice that he says, as though 
by our power or piety, our religiosity, we have made him walk. So by Peter's own admission, this wasn't about Peter. This wasn't about John. And then he addresses God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In essence, God, the one true God. And then notice these phrases. He glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, we read over that quickly without much thought, but in that description, Peter exalts the very person of Jesus Christ because he ties this man, Jesus, to a great deal of Scripture from the Old Testament of where God speaks of His servant. One example, just one among many in Isaiah 52, Isaiah writes, Behold, as the words of God, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. I said one example. Let me give you another from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And he goes on. And there are numerous other passages of which Peter's audience would have fully been aware of this servant of Yahweh. And so when Peter declares this, he, in essence, he exalts the person of this, whom they considered merely a man, this person, Jesus, was in fact this servant. So he brings content, meaning, to this name. Then he goes on, he doesn't only reference him as servant, but then he goes on and in, in, in indicting them, he says, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one. Instead of releasing him as Pilate sought to do, you, God's people, so you say, you denied the holy and the righteous one, the, the one who's set apart for special purpose and in himself is fully just, sinless, not worthy of dying. You denied this one. But also, again, ties them, this man Jesus, to the words of the prophets and God's holy one, and God's righteous one. So again, he gives content to the meaning of the name of Jesus. But then finally, he adds that they asked for a murder to be granted to them and you killed the author of life. There's irony in that statement, isn't there? You put to death the author of life. But they, he acknowledges this man, Jesus, as the very source of life itself. He is the, the servant of the prophet Isaiah, spoken of many, many years ago. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the righteous or the just one. And he is, in fact, the author of life. Peter's point here is he doesn't just wave a name. He doesn't just go, as we might imagine in the story, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So all we need to do is have faith and say, Jesus. And there you have it. And so if we lay our hands on a person and have enough faith and, and say in the name of Jesus that that's the intent of Scripture. But it's not. 
And the Bible doesn't present it that way. Because as we will see going through Acts, in every wonder, there will always be a word. The purpose of the wonder is not the wonder itself. It is to point to something significant. And it is in that word that explanation, understanding, content is given to that very name. There are those who, who, with good intention, believe that all you have to do is tag the name of Jesus to something and it will somehow get God's blessing. I would propose to you that that is the most egregious use of God's name. In fact, I believe that's what is the intent of the Bible when it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. To add the name of Jesus to our desires in order to get what we think should be done. Just say, in Jesus' name. That is an abuse of the name of God and it's tantamount to idolatry. And it is committed regularly by many of us and mostly by the church. There is meaning in the name because the name points us to more than just a name. It points us to God's servant, purposed from the very beginning to accomplish God's mission. It points us to the very content and character, nature of this servant who is holy and righteous. And in fact, he himself is the author of life. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the source of creation. Peter then declares that to that, to this, these events, Peter and John says, we are witnesses. We know this to be true. But then he exposes faith. Not faith. Faith. Sounds good. Faith. Have faith. That's not what he exposes. He exposes the very object of faith. Verse 16, he says, after adding meaning to this word that we're going to read, and his name, and then there's a parenthetical insertion to explain this. The focus, the subject is his name. Insert, by faith in his name, there's our faith, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. There was no doubt. Now, the challenge I would put to anybody who is of the, the, the leaning towards what people call faith healing. Do I believe God heals? Absolutely, I believe God heals. But the movement that we see in our modern day, which is relatively new, I would challenge you to... to Put it under the microscope of Scripture and what the focus and the goals around it are. How often is the gospel taught and declared apart from your desire to gain something for yourself? It was His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. We hear all kinds of stories, don't we? And we go, wow, we would love to, to experience one of those things, one of those amazing miracles. And I can tell you, here's the thing. This was incontrovertible. 
These people saw this man set there day after day for more than 40 years. They knew him. They knew him to be incapable. This was not a temporary fix. This man was up, running, leaping, praising God. They knew it was real. There was no doubt about it. This wasn't just a story conveyed to add some sensationalism to the gospel so that maybe the gospel would do something or have some more power in it. This was clear that God had done this. But the amazing thing is that the focus isn't that, which is what you will find in the midst of the modern movement. The focus is the preaching of the gospel and the content of the name, which then Peter says, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. His name, by faith in His name, this faith through Jesus. So here's the thing. There's no mention of the man's faith here. Now, we'll see some stories that will deal with that kind of thing. But this story is not about the lame man's faith. In fact, it's the faith that Peter exercises. And this faith, the Bible tells us, has its source in Jesus Himself. It is Peter and John walking to the temple to go to prayer. We don't know how many times they passed this man by, but on that particular day, God, for whatever reason He so desired, led Peter to this man and granted Peter the faith to be the means of healing for this man. It is Peter who believed in the name to the point that God healed this man. Now, again, there's much more to be said about faith that will be revealed to us, but let me add one more thing to this and then give you some conclusions, because I titled it Faith, Knowledge, and Service. Now, I haven't really focused on knowledge other than the knowledge of the truth, which is the Word. That's what I mean by that. But service. Let me just address service. You say, well, where is service in this? Well, go back to the beginning of the story. As I mentioned, there are plenty of able-bodied people in Israel in that day who were starving and begging for food. And it's interesting to me that Peter and John come along and they perform this miracle, this amazing miracle, and they heal him. But I'm thinking, but the guy needed money for food, right? He still wasn't going to have any money for food. He could walk, but that didn't put bread on his table. And I say that because more often than not, when we think about service, we think about, let's put it in these terms, community service. Now, this is not an attempt for me to denigrate that, except for this. Community service is not the goal of the church. Now, that might sound like a crazy statement because, listen, people call the church when there's needs, right? We have a benevolence line item to help community people, and that's a good thing. But it's not the goal of the church, it's always interesting to me, and you, can, you follow social media, you'll see this from time to time, that when somebody's in need, they, they call the churches, and usually church after church after church. But when the church doesn't provide what they're asking for, whether it's buy them groceries or pay their light bill, they get mad. I've been on the receiving end of this numerous times. You know why they get mad? Because it's the assumption of the community that that's our job is to meet physical needs in the community. Now, why would the world around us, the community, assume for some reason or another that that's what we're here for? 
And I would argue that that one's on us because that's what we present. We present that our primary role in the community that we exist in is to serve the community on earthly needs. Now, I'm not arguing that that's wrong or bad. I am arguing that the reason why so many people look to the church, and again, follow social media. You'll see it time and time again where somebody will denigrate a church because they asked for help and they wouldn't help them. Because that's what's expected. And it's expected because that's what the church so often presents as our primary calling in the community, to do good stuff. I want us to do good stuff. You want to have good reputation. I get that. But when it becomes what the world around us views as our primary calling, we've messed up somewhere. Peter and John showed up, were asked for silver and gold. They did not provide this man's immediate need. They did something far greater than that. They changed his life. Now, we can assume, the Bible doesn't tell us, that hopefully he will now be able to, by that means, get food. We don't know. It doesn't tell us, and it doesn't tell us because it's not the point. The point is, what they didn't do was merely community serve him. He was showing up at the temple. Why? Because that was the religious people. What do they do? They give us money. He didn't even expect God to show up as he did. And I would argue that the majority of people in the community today look at the church and they would never expect God to show up through the church, but merely to provide them what they think is their ultimate need, however temporary that might be. That's not what service means in light of the church. We have faith, but faith in a person, trust in a person, belief in a person. We have faith in a person because He has revealed to us through the Word of God the, the knowledge of truth. We have a foundational knowledge that is necessary for all true knowledge, ultimately, because God is the source of that knowledge. And our faith in the knowledge of the truth leads us to not merely community service, but to serve the living Lord of life. Conclusions. Healing is not the goal of faith. Now think about that for a moment. Let it soak in. Healing is not the goal of faith. So when someone says, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you, there's something fundamentally wrong underneath that statement. It's a great sentiment. It's a great desire. We want our loved ones whole and healthy and here. I get that. But our desires and our emotions do not drive truth. Healing is not the goal of faith. Jesus is. That's the reason why we get the wonder that led to the Word. The revelation of the content and the character of this man, Jesus, who is the servant of God, the servant of Yahweh, the holy and righteous one, the very author of life himself. Healing is not the goal of faith. Exposing and exalting Jesus is. And as I just said, the second thing I have here is the wonders always point to the Word. Praise God if He works in miraculous ways. That's of His choosing. It was His choosing that day. Peter and John, they didn't know that was going to happen. God, through them, worked a miracle. And God can do what God desires to do. 
He will always do what He does in connection with the revealed truth that He's given to us. Praise God for anything supernatural that He might do, but the purpose is always to point to the Word. And by that, I both mean the Scripture and the Word. The Word became flesh. So when we think about this, and you know people right now who are severely sick and ailing, and you want them whole, I understand that. But there's a bigger question to be asking, because the goal in our hurting and our suffering is not our healing. Now that for the believer will come ultimately and finally when Christ returns, but here and now that is not the goal. The goal is to exalt Christ, and so how in the suffering of our our own suffering, how in the suffering and grief of our loved ones might Christ be exalted and exposed through that? That's the goal that we should be driving at and praying for. The wonder offers a momentary thrill. Wow, we're amazed. That's awesome. But the Word offers eternal transformation. That's why in looking a little ahead, Peter says in verse 19, Repent, therefore. On the basis of the preached word of God, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Herein lies the goal of God working in in and through any circumstance is that the gospel go forth individually from the church and that the result is repentance. And for all who repent, every person who repents, and you understand repentance is both the turning from and the turning to. So it is both an acknowledgement of our sinfulness and our turning away from that sinfulness and turning to and trusting in a person, Jesus Christ, believing that in Him and only Him is our hope and the solution to all our sin. Repent, therefore, and turn back because All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each our own way. We've turned from God. We're rebels against God. And we repent and believe and trust. We turn back. And when we do, our sins are blotted out. And we'll look a little bit more at that result next week. But remember this. Consider these things. Faith has as its object the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not Just a phrase, a sentiment, a name. It's much deeper and richer than that. And it requires the knowledge of the truth that rests in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And service is the fruit. The service of a Christian, of a church, is the fruit of faith in Christ and always leads to gospel proclamation, both individually and corporately. So, How are you serving as a result of your declared faith in Christ and what you have the privilege of knowing because you sit under the reading and the proclamation of the Word week after week? How's your service? Is it merely silver and gold? Or is it the life-transforming, eternal-transforming power of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. May we be encouraged by it. May we be convicted by it, individually, 
corporately as a church. I pray, Lord, that, number one, that we would be strengthened in faith, that you, by your power, would grant to us increased faith to trust and believe in you and the work that you've done already accomplished on Calvary's cross that is revealed and, and, and in the resurrection, that we would have faith that, that obedience to you and the, the proclamation of your word is powerfully transforming lives in every nation. And because of the privilege that we have by possessing in our own hands copies of your revelation, the word of God that we can know, and because we have the opportunities at every turn to hear um, those ex people explaining the words that we might grow in our knowledge of the truth, I pray that as a result, Lord, we would want to declare that truth and share that truth with others. And that our service, individually and corporately, would be revealed to be not merely momentary and temporal and humanitarian, but while we would want to do all those things, but that the, what the world looking at us would see is a service to a living Lord. And we know it's your mission that the gospel be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So may we be found faithful in your service as your emissaries, as your ambassadors, proclaiming that truth to the ends of the earth, or at least across the street. Convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. Encourage us, Lord, as well. Strengthen our faith for your glory and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.